This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Schmoozing with Rav Meir Schiller, which I have subtitled Meir Ene Chachomim. And Rav Meir, even Chachomim should get some sort of enlightening from our conversation, especially since I think we're moving into an area that I think Chachomim and teachers could get a lot from. Uh, and that is your role, which was for so many years, for so many people in the, in the New York area who still know you as that, as a teacher, as a coach, we talked last time about your your stay in the square coil and and when you left the square coil am i correct that you assumed a teaching position right away yes this is september of 1977 i got a job as a rebbe in the yeshiva high school of queens no longer exists it's now the yu girls school central high school but in those days it was boys on the first floor girls on the second floor the Yeshiva High School of Queens. So uh, I did a few visits to some yeshivas in the New York area, but eventually Rabbi David Cohn, who was a old time Berliner of Fabel Cohn's brother, uh, and uh, he gave me the job in YHSQ. How did that interview go? How, how did he decide that I'm going to take this sort of interesting Chassidish younger man from Skiver who who speaks better English than I do. How did he figure this out? Because you probably weren't like the other teachers, the Rebbeim that they had there. No, 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 not at all. When I first went out to watch this guy, he says, come out, you know, you'll give a, you know, a guest uh, lecture, a guest shear. And I came out and I taught a shear there in Masethus Marcus. And I had, you know, notes and I had handouts and everything a teacher was supposed to have. And afterwards, we sat down and we spoke. I believe the conversation veered into sports. He was a pretty big sports fan. He had been an old Brooklyn Dodgers fan back in the day. And uh, within 10, 15 minutes of the conversation, he says, you know, I don't have a full-time position for you, but I'm going to combine tutoring with a part-time position to get you the salary, and I'd like very much to have you. He, there's, there's one funny story to this, which is when I when he spoke to me afterwards, he says there's – one thing I have to tell you, you called on a certain kid and you asked him to say, oh, the Gemara, whatever. And you told the boy that, no, that's not correct. And you moved on to another boy. I got to tell you, he said, that's not right. Always tell a kid it's partially right. It's something right. Don't be so completely dismissive. And throughout my teaching career, whenever I would call on somebody to say over a shtickle and they would have no idea what they're talking about, I would tell over this story. And I would tell the boy, would Rabbi David Cohn not have told me that? I would say to you right now, you have no idea what you're talking about. You haven't listed anything. But since he forbid it, therefore I can't say it to you. <laughs> I see. But, uh, so you kept your insistence on exactitude while uh, inserting a more liberal uh, understanding of, of your students. It, it was uh, very friendly. Everybody loved it, even even the kid who was so uh, criticized. This was a, a sort of a why you a feeder school, right? This was a, a no, not necessarily. Yeshiva High School Queens. It was it was actually a YCQ next step school because Yeshiva Central Queens was the elementary school and YHSQ was the high school. 
So not necessarily why you feed her. I mean, maybe a small number went to why you. Uh-huh. So well, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of the type of kids you were teaching. Because remember, you know, you had experience with the, you know, non-religious public school kids and then very intense Beishraga kids and then Chesidosh Chevra. Now you were teaching a whole different type of animal, wasn't it? Yes. And it was very surprising to me because I knew my orthodoxy from the pages of Tradition magazine, writings of Rabbi Lamb, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Lichtenstein, and I was suspecting that I was going to come in there and find kids studying astronomy with a Sefer on the other hand. And it was not quite that. Uh, I was so I was so shocked by what I found there. And this is my orthodoxy in 1977 was in a far weaker state in terms of every aspect of Yiddishkeit than a lot of it has become today. It has vastly improved today in many of its sectors. But in those days, you know, there was that tiny, tiny little red yarmulke you wore, and uh, many, many aspects of Yiddishkeit were way, way subpar. I was so shocked that I ran to Rabbi Lamb, who we have discussed in an earlier broadcast, I believe, and um, I made an appointment to go see him. So I was just so shocked. But he did not want, and, and never in our time spent together, did he confront, I think, honestly, the insufficiencies of, of modern Orthodox uh, lay people. Did you have another agenda sometimes to not only convey the information in a way that was clear and allowed them to appreciate Torah and learning, did you have another agenda to sort of move them more to the right, to a derech of Kedusha and Hasidus? Well, you're overstating it a bit. I did have an agenda to move them to a halachic uh, commitment to Torah Mitzvah. So uh, it, it wasn't as I wasn't envisioning we were going to sit down with the Reb Tzaddik or something, but I was at least envisioning, you know, Shachas Menchemar being davened and uh, many many other areas of I, I, I just have to interject. We know one of Rav Tzadok's favorite subjects. I think Rav Tzadok would probably have been very, very appropriate yeah. <laughs> for these kids in their, in their teenage could, years. Could be, could be. But again, it was, it was an attempt to move them in terms of Yiddish. Absolutely, absolutely. It was, a, it was an attempt to bring them into the world of Torah mitzvahs and not necessarily to abjure Torah Madaism, but to have them um, come in line with, with Shulchan Aruch. When, when I wrote my article for the Journal of Halachic Contemporary Society on the, on the Chiyah of married women to cover their hair, I had in mind a lot of the, the girls and boys that I had taught in YHSQ that to, to bring them into every area of Halacha in which my orthodoxy was, uh, shockingly neglectful at that point. So certainly that was the agenda for sure. Mm. I guess people don't want to necessarily talk about their own accomplishments. Do you feel that over the years you made more than just a dent in the religious lives of your students? Well, A, I'd certainly hope so. And B, I would say that when YHSQ merged with MHS, Manhattan Hebrew High School's Rabbi Riskin, and the boys moved to Forest Hills to Masifta Otora, and the girls stayed in the central building, I think there's a lot more was accomplished there. We had many more committed rabbeim in terms of the lives of the students. And there's just a very good vibe that Rabbi Riskin gave off and uh, Rabbi Nachman Cohen, who was the principal there. So I think a lot more in the OTI days, but surely there are still uh, boys and some girls and uh, that are still from YHSQ, have improved things and 
Ramaz Hockey, which also takes place in those days, 1979 to 81. Yeah, well, we'll get to the sports in a second. Okay. I, I know this is an area that uh, you're not chomping at the bit, but you, this is where I, besides hearing you from the Cohens, most of the people that, that I've met who, who are connected to you, most, not all, talk about you in terms of your coaching, but we'll get to that. To 10 years out of 45, that's all it was. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Rabbi Riskin. Uh, I, I, I've met him and spoken to him and, you know, he is a, a unique, uh, firebrand. He, he doesn't shout at you, but he drips sincerity and he combines it with surprisingly subtle intellectual ideas. You know, because, you know, when you're sort of talking to him, you, you, you don't expect to hear the profundity and yet often, he was and still is a very profound person. Did you find you had a meeting of the minds with, with Rabbi Riskin? Well, first of all, I agree with you completely that Rabbi Riskin had an intellectual grounding and he was a well-read fellow. But Rabbi Riskin was an Oskin. And he was running from here to there and in projects and ideas. And it was hard to, to sit him down and have that, you know, man to man reflective discussion because he was just so he was a bundle of energy so our relationship was always pleasant but uh it was it was hard to hard to catch him in a reflective moment he was he was always building something new and going somewhere else right and and of course his life took a, a very uh upward turn when he decided to really build a frat and right. the ortora institute that's over there which i guess is still sort of an extension really of what he built in, in New York. So I guess what I'm trying to ask you I, I, is that you felt comfortable there. You didn't feel like you were just a, a paid stranger. You felt in that environment, despite the fact that it was very different than you know, your sensibilities, you felt respected. You felt like you were appreciated and you felt that you could work with the, with the, with the team of teachers uh, that you were uh, a colleague with. Right. Yes, that is true. And, um, most of my colleagues in both places, YHSQ and OTI, were sort of yeshivish uh, to varying degrees. You did not yet have the uh, the YU products actually staffing these places. So they were sort of uh, yeshivish, um, warm, giving, caring types. And more than that, I think the Talmudim that the adolescents that I taught, I felt very welcomed by. And uh, the relationship was was very positive. I, I mean, I slept from Muncie to YHSQ. I mean, until I found I finally got a ride with Ramatis Greenblatt. But before I had Ramatis, I can't I shudder to even tell you what the trek was on the Hasidic Shabbos to 47th Street, getting out of 47th Street, getting on the E-train, going to the last stop on the E-train at 179th Street, transferring to the Q43, riding another 20, 20 blocks on a city bus, walking four blocks up the hill to YHSQ. But, wait, wait, wait. Am I, am I getting the, that you are not a driver? You don't drive? Never have. Never have. Never wow. sat behind a wheel, never did it. We'll get that one second, but let me just finish. That was both both ways, and it was way over two hours, one way. And I would say it was Mamish Kiyom and Machadim in my in, in how much I loved what I was doing. I always wanted to be a Rebbe. By the time that I became from 12 years old, I want to be a Rebbe. I want to teach Gemara. I wanted to sell Yiddishkeit as a Zisa Zach. I, I have some Talmudim from those days. I still am in touch with them, and they're always wary of mentioning YHSQ. Because they know I'm going to go off into a love-filled tirade of 30 minutes 
talking about some aspect of it. So it was uh, it was an enchanted time, and I didn't mind the E train or the F train. Wow. And and is it a chesidish shita? I know chesidish women don't drive, or is it something unique in your personality that you, even if you had not become from you, you don't think you would have driven? It's possible. First of all, in Kailo Square, you weren't allowed to drive because it was seen as a distraction from uh, devotion to learning. And then I don't know if I could have afforded it in the early days in YHSQ. But I think the real reason is, and this is going to be self-analysis, which the audience might not get. I don't do things or I do them with great pain and difficulty if they don't relate to my my primary missions. So I, I don't know anything about computers. I don't know anything about cars. I don't know anything about many things that most people know about because I, I, I just have no interest. And when I have no interest, I can't really pursue things. So uh, I think that's the key to the driving. I'd rather Can say- I push back for all the drivers for a minute? Because, you know, you're sort of like floating this idea that all you drivers have somehow uh, dissipated your central rationale for being, and you've sort of put it into cars, whereas, you know, Mayor Schiller here is sort of the pure human no, no. being. So let no, me just no, push, no. let me just no. push back a little bit. Ahead, I don't push back often with you, as you notice, but sometimes I, sometimes as I'm staring at my key ring, I'm thinking my car key ring, I'm saying, wait, to have to be dependent on a bus coming, to have to be dependent on a subway, to have to sit on the subway, possibly being jostled, possibly in front of some performer, possibly in front of some pre situation, the car is a necessary evil, but it gets you there. It's able yeah. to cut to the yeah. chase. Yeah. Now, it's true. There, I don't think my primary mission is anything except teaching either a mayor. Uh, and I've been doing it, you know, in my, since I was, uh, you know, 18. So, you know, I, I, you know, I could make a claim as well, uh, 44 years, 40, almost 45 years as well. You know, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take off the table any implication. That that was a, a disparagement of the drivers, but again, for me, uh, by the way, I just want to say about the traveling on buses and subways. You have to hop. There's a chiddush here. I was always traveling in empty buses and subways because I was going out to Queens when everybody was coming in from into Queens, and Fakat in the afternoon, I was going into Manhattan when everybody was coming out. So I was riding in essentially empty E and F trains. So. uh that's, a, that's an important footnote to this. But, no, i just rather we would be able to read or learn while sitting on a bus or a train, and then if somebody else is driving, to have a discussion with him and not to be bothered by, you know, the breakdown of cars and all the little minor inconveniences. But, no, if I offended any drivers out there, uh, I'd ask them to table. <laughs> well, look, it, it takes a certain mentality and a certain type of knowledge of what you can learn on a jostling train or bus. You know what I'm saying? So you have to have the, the Kishron, you know, first of all, you have to have the concentra- ability to concentrate, but also to know what you're going to be studying. So I don't know if the, 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 the is perfect for train reading or bus reading, but, but the, I agree with you. There are types of inspiring literature. There are Sipuri Mysias, uh, even, you know, Musser or Chazering, something that you already know very well and sure. just, you know, get a chance to put it in your head. Yes. I, I'll tell you that those empty, those empty E and F trains in the summer air condition, which I was often the only person sitting in the car. I mean, who's coming back from Holliswood, Queens to Manhattan at four in the afternoon? 
that um, I, I enjoy those those times a great deal. Okay, let's talk about uh, sports. How did you come to add to your repertoire being a uh, was the hockey coach, right, for yes. Ramaz? Yes. And of course, let's, let's let's explain to our listeners who might not live in the Northeast. I told you uh, off pod a couple of minutes ago that we got uh, we have a listener from the Midwest who knows that when you say hockey, you mean a puck on the ice. Uh, in the Northeast, when we talk about the Yeshiva Hockey Leagues, this is floor hockey, right? Yes. Floor yes. hockey, um, yes. where, you know, you have a sort of, I don't know, the, the, the actual court or what it's called. What do they call it? The Well, again, what you would call it, I used to call it, you know, the playing floor. But again, these are the gym floors of the various Yeshivas, which are reconfigured to make them hockey uh, accessible. Right. So basically, it's the same idea of thrashing and moving the puck right. with your stick and uh, but uh, it doesn't have that grace and x factor of of ice right. where you actually but so it's actually a lot of running and a lot of uh, right so so how was it that Ramaz got a hold of you to be their coach there were boys from Queens who attended Ramaz if you were looking for the Ramaz gestalt which we'd have to analyze in a moment what that is. But if you were looking for that, and uh, you came from everywhere, from Westchester, from Connecticut, from from Queens, from New Jersey, if you were looking for the, the unique thing, which in those days Ramaz was offering. So there were boys in Queens who were friendly with some of my Talmudim from the Yeshiva High School of Queens. And they told these Ramaz boys about me, that I was very hockey knowledgeable, both in... Uh, in the ideas of the sport and tactics and strategy and so forth. So they suggest they get in touch with me. So one of those Ramaz boys called me and left a message that uh, they're making a hockey team in Ramaz. And I thought it was absolute nonsense, never going to happen. I did not return his call, but he was very insistent, called me several times. And then finally the principal of Ramaz called me, said, okay, this is something real. So I Went to Ramaz for the interview, and I interviewed with the principal in those days. Was uh, Mrs. Ritterband was her name. She said, "You know, there's not yet a league, but we're hoping we're hoping to create a league. But first, many boys here want the team." Uh, to which I can translate for you what she meant to say was, "Many wealthy and powerful Balabatim from the KJ, their kids wanted the team, so Ramaz had to make the team." We uh, worked very hard at creating the league. And um, that's how I got the job at Ramaz. And uh, again, I know I'm, I'm waxing way too romantic here, but I loved every minute Ramaz also. It, Ramaz in those days was... Uh, I think waxing is a good term when you're talking about the playing floor, right? <laughs> true, true, true. The, no, um, no Zamboni machine there. No Zambonis, that's for sure. <laughs> and I got to tell the truth, when Ramaz went to the new building on 85th, I'm sorry, on 78th, when they moved to the new building, uh, they had a floor that were very sensitive about letting us play there so they insisted for a while we not play there then play their own with plastic sticks but that's a whole whole different escapade but in any event so, so, so you added this i mean you, you you have a growing family you have your wife in the area again you'd already moved out of spare it's still a big trip um yeah. and you didn't stop teaching at the boys high school so this was an addition to your boys high school teaching you then added to it the trip to ramaz in manhattan to serve as a hockey coach, was it three times a week? Was it how many times a week did you have to do that? Two practices and one game usually. 
So yeah, three three is is basically accurate. Although I must add that primarily it was on the way back from YHSQ. So there wasn't the extra trip in, unless there might have been occasionally times when uh, there was no YHSQ, in which, in which case it was a trip in. Right, right. Which meant, of course, still it added a number of hours till you trudged Willie Loman-like back to your domicile back in Rockland County. Carrying my briefcase with us for a minute. So yes. Willie Loman analogy is pretty good there. <laughs> yes, I'm saying like this idea that here you are schlepping back after a very long day. Yes. Tell me, you know, obviously the, the, there's a difference between training, coaching than there is teaching Gemara. And, and, and we already know, I think every listener will know that when it comes to teaching Gemara, Talmud or Chumash, uh, to modern American high school kids, you are dealing with a captive audience, but not necessarily an engrossed and caring audience. You're dealing with an audience that you have to prove every single day why this means anything and why it's relevant and why they should care about it. You have to sell the product. I always used to sell a mayor, the math teachers that I used to share uh, teacher lounges with and say, you guys have it so easy. In other words, you, you do not have to reinvent the wheel. You walk in every day and you say, let's solve this problem. And that's it. And they come up to the board and they either show their skills or they don't. You give them a worksheet and they work on it right away. We, Again, I'll share with you one of my first experiences uh, when I was teaching in the Ida Crown Jewish Academy, which, of course, is a name you're familiar with. Sure. And they decided that I just I was leaving full time Kyle and I was becoming a high school uh, teacher in Ida Crown. So the head of the school decided that he was going to give me the worst possible class to see if I could handle it. So I was given the. The ninth grader, ninth grade troublemakers that even the nice guy, Rabbi Fliegelman, was not able to handle. So they throw, throw Kibalevich in there and let's see what happens. Okay. So I, I went with a lot of uh, energy and, and hope and preparation. And I remember that we came to the Sugi and Grochis, that Nokat Kois Shikra right? That a person picks up a cup of beer and he starts with the wrong brocha. Thinking, thinking that it's chamra, but then he changes, right? And to me, this was such a beautiful sugi about what is a bracha about? Is it about invoking God? Is it about the getting to the brass tacks of what you're going to drink? And I was like, what does it mean? So one kid raises his hand and says, Rabbi, none of us make brachas. Not, there's not one person here that even cares about this. We don't make brachas. Doesn't mean anything to us. I said, you never make brachas? No, they all said. Well, what about when you go to eat? Don't you make a bracha of your food? Don't you do netilas yadayim? No. Maybe on Shabbos, one kid says, we, we make netilas yadayim. So now I don't say this was your students, but these were mine. And I realized very early that we have a very hard task teaching in a modern Orthodox school and, and to make these things relevant Hockey, on the other hand, these kids were there because they wanted to be there. They wanted to be there. So you sort of had people that were waiting for your instruction and waiting to sort of like uh, seep, to, to soak in your enthusiasm and to feed it back to you. Am I accurate in the way I'm describing the, the difference between teaching? Yes, pretty much. So first of all, I will say the picture you're painting of your Eidocrat experiences were just about my experiences in YHSQ, except for a 
small percentage. Now, um, in Ramaz, I think there are two um, footnotes I would add to your presentation. One, it is true that they were bringing a commitment, a natural commitment, which was not being brought in terms of learning. Although with the learning, you have to understand that the grades were a motivator. So I was always a stickler for tests and grades, and that saved me in the in my North Tax experience, especially in the YHSQ days that I gave accurate grades, which are very shocking to most of them. But in, in, in Ramaz, there were two things they weren't ready for. One was that I was going to take this task of trying to win a championship much more seriously than they had reckoned it was going to be. So in a sense, I was bringing a much more demanding approach to hockey than they had originally envisioned. And second of all, there was going to be a large Yiddishkeit element of before or after games whenever relevant, which again was not something they were necessarily used to in their own lives. And in those days, the league did not demand helmets. Later on, it became uh, required, but in those days, it was not demanded. So I demanded that they all wear all wear yarmulkes and uh, actually got some of the girls in YHSQ to knit yarmulkes in blue and gold, which were the Ramaz colors with the numbers of various players. So I was able to give them that as a gift, but I demanded they wear yarmulkes at all times while they were playing. So I think I was demanding more of them, both in terms of the hockey and in terms of the uh, of Yiddishkeit. But, but the word love is way too much. But the, the affection that I had with those teams and they had with me was uh, really astonishing. And particularly Ramaz in those days, as I said, was a demanding academic and intellectual environment. And very often after the practice after tomorrow, we would sit around and, and discuss the political uh, issues of the day. And I remember one particular incident, which I can pass on to you, because I had sort of explained to them that I'm more of sort of the populist, communitarian, economic theorist, not necessarily the uh, the Adam, Adam Smith, harsh libertarian school of thought, and that I was sympathetic to religion in general. So I'm about ready to drop the puck at the next practice, and the kid who's facing off leans over to me. So Rob, they call me Rob. So Rob, what is your view of the Sandinista? <laughs> I see. So again, I see. that was the kind of thing you could get in Ramaz in those days. You know, A, B, C. Okay, so what do you think about liberation theology? So this is a, a Ramaz story. I tether that to their parents. In other words, you're talking about wealthy Manhattanites who are intellectuals who speak about these things at the dinner table. And, you know, they're not, and therefore the kids genetically and organically based on the environment, pick these things up. Museum of Art was not a from the place to them. Yes, right. It, so, it was near where they lived and, and they often visited there. So it was a, an exceptional experience. Now, what's happened since then is since you have SAR and North Shore and even Frisch and these various other competing schools, I think Ramaz has had to sort of limit itself to Manhattan and lower its standards a bit. So that heyday of Ramaz, uh, aesthetic and intellectual Ramaz of the late 70s, uh, I think is gone, unfortunately. Obviously, you know, you, you had invested yourself in teaching Gemara based on your own love, based on how you built yourself up. Did you have a, a sports philosophy and a specifically hockey philosophy? And where did you get that from? <laughs> yeah, I wanted very much to... Uh, uh, to combine sort of the the more robust roughhouse style, which was dominant in the NHL at that time, the Flyers and the Bruins of that era. 
but I was also not uh, uninfluenced by the the Soviets and um, the, the Russian hockey uh, infusion, which began in 1972 with Team Canada series. So I was trying to do both and trying to invest both into the team. I, I suppose the rest of the league would have thought we emphasized the rough stuff more, but it's not necessarily true. We had a lot of <laughs> we had a lot of very very uh, good finesse players, but who also were were courageous and. Uh, hardworking and fearless. So I, I tried to combine both styles. Maybe you can think, maybe, uh, again, I am not pretentious enough to compare myself to the name I'm going to give you now. It would be like a, a spittle from the lips of a fool if I would. But maybe sort of a Herb Brooks tried to do in 1980 with the Olympic team in 1980. Maybe, again, I, I, I once spoke to Herb Brooks, so I, see. I don't need to compare so myself to th- That's the Miracle on Ice team? Yes. Yes, he's the, he was the coach. He was the coach, how the U.S. was able to dethrone the Russian. Can I tell you a, a, a very humorous, wonderful story about that game? So the game was Friday night, and I had a Talmud. It was watch SQ, and he called me up there of Shabbos, and he said, Rebbe, I have a neighbor of mine who's going to watch the game tonight. Can I go over and watch it? I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to watch it. And my famous last words to this boy were, I said, if this was something important, I might think about it. This is going to be a stupid game. The Russians are going to kill him. So <laughs> don't don't waste it on this. You know? <laughs> I hear, I hear. But fortunately, he still talks to me to this day, fortunately. <laughs> I have to tell you, a similar spirit of Sha'ila came up in my day, not as a teacher, but, you know, as a resident, a denizen, I will say, of the Windy City during the Bulls' triumphant triumphs where – the Shilas came up all the time. You know, people were, 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 were the, the, the whole city was gripped by, by the Bulls and, and them winning and watching the games. And I remember the Shilas came up for many people that they wanted to perhaps take a stroll over to the Gully next door and perhaps watch. Uh, so I, I can, I, I understand what that is to be taken by the sport. And that shows again how, again, the unifying factor. To, to give and receive love is the way I phrased it. That's, people ask me why I coached. I said, to give and receive love. In 1980, one of the best kids on the team asked me whether we should go to Eretz Yisrael in January. In those days, Ramaz, you sort of graduated in January of your senior year. And many of the... I think they, 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 it was called like a senior internship where they sort of like, they sort of basically cruised... With yes. some sort of project that they would work on and they would do a presentation at the end of the year, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like that. And then if you wanted to go learn Eretz Yisrael, that's when the Ramaz kids would go, from January to June of their senior year. So I had one very good player on the team, and I remember we were standing on 47th Street and I was missing various Hasidic buses. We were engaging in discussions as to whether he should leave the team and go spend that half a year in Eretz Yisrael. And again, understand, he was very important to us. And we did not win the championship that year. And I told him, you have to go. You have to uh-huh. go. It's a once-in-a-lifetime so, thing. You, you, have always, to go. You, you always had the, the priorities correct, I guess, is what I you're trying so. to I hope so. I told him to go. And we lost the championship. Now, you know, I, I've tried to contrast the, the different aspects of teaching, uh, coaching a team and being a Rebbe in a class. You've owned up to how different they are. But altogether, it was a, as you say, a, a package that that gave you sustenance, that gave you spiritual sustenance. I'm going to assume that it also, because you were teaching in schools that were funded by modern Orthodox donors, this was a hechrach for you. This was a parnosa that 
you couldn't have teaching anywhere else. Not in those days. Right. Not in those days. Yeshivish schools, you would, you would be paid a pittance. We would play a pittance in those schools in those days. The modern Orthodox world already accepted that their rabbeim are going to come from the yeshivish belt. And, and where else, where else the protectia factor, not that Mayor Schiller is not a, a smart enough person, but that who do you know and what do you know and what yeshiva you're from. And they, I, I like to think I would have brought enough of a package of enthusiasm and joy and life, but you know, who knows? And see, the only place I ever taught was in those institutions. They, they didn't pay anything in those days. I mean, I, I, it took me a couple of years to get to five figures and there was no pay during the summer. So it was, uh, it was a bare bones existence. Even during your teaching days in, uh, what was the name of the school again? Where, which one? Uh, Even in the modern school, what was it called? Uh, which one? Ramaz or coaching or MTA in the end? Yeah, an MTA. I, well, well, MTA in the last 30, the last 35 years, as the years went on, the salaries came up in the modern Orthodox world. Well, when I first started out, it was, uh, it was no holds barred, boy. It was, uh, the wolf was at the door constantly. In terms of being able to make your payments, be able to, to, sure. to live hand sure. to mouth. Sure. I, in the summer, they didn't pass in the summer at all. I used to teach in a summer during the summer, which also was not who knows what. So, uh, no, it was, it was a labor of love, not, uh, not an economic endeavor. One of the things that, um, you know, I, I tried to do in my modern Orthodox school teaching was to bring the kids to my house and uh, to make Shabbatonim and things like that. Was that part of what you did as well? Uh, more, I would go there. We would do the Shabbos in the yeshiva. And that we did a lot of. And I think it, uh, think it accomplished a lot. Uh, so and you brought your family. Sometimes, sometimes not. Yeah. You know, I saw this as a way to, to influence in, in other ways of Yeshimish if you know, if, if I could be so bold to say that there was something about being able to see the Rebbe, uh, you know, at, at home, at his house, singing his mirrors, um, going to shul together. You know, there was something that was, uh, special about those Shabbatonim that we used to have. And again, it was, I did it without, uh, the school's insistence or even direction and, you know, I did it out of, you know, my egg and a guilt, you know, to pay for, for everything. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to one point here, which is, you know, teaching wise, I would try very hard to make it clear what the curriculum was. This is the word list. This is the phrase list. Step by step in the Gemara, you have to know by heart. So it, it was, I, I think I tried very hard to emphasize clearly what the requirements were going to be. So I think that was also a plus, but go ahead. One of the things that I've, I've been impressed in our conversations off and on pod was that you mentioned to me that you, you still are finding tricks and, 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 and ways to teach, even though you're in your seventies and, you know, you're not anywhere near the amount of teaching you did before, but you still are ready to learn new ways to give over things. You know, there are teachers that, that have the same worksheets, the same books, the same jokes, you know, the same emphases. And you started, as you said, in the, in the, in the mid to late seventies. And that teaching career lasted in the modern Orthodox area for 45 years till 20, till 2020, 2021. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's 45 years. Yeah. Right. And would you say that you evolved? Sounds like it, right? That you, you have to, even though you say you, you aren't computer literate, which, you know, for many people is really, the main difference between old style teaching and new style teaching. 
why don't you give me some some examples of things that that you introduced and things you were ready to learn? You know, one of the things that uh, I'll just give you a reference point. One of our landsman, <laughs> one of the people of the tribe that was very big in the period of the sixties was Abby Hoffman. Of course, steal yeah. this book. Steal, steal this, this book. book. Yeah. Right, that was his thing. So yeah. I remember going to some teacher training and steal this is what they would say. In other words, the other teachers loved if people could steal methods of what they used, things that they were about. So talk about some things that you've stolen from others and things that you've gained and how you've introduced it to some of your teaching. Wow. Um, first of all, I never stopped reading in terms of educational books. And uh, when the schools would have these uh, seminars for teachers, which got longer and more irrelevant and more boring as my career went along, I was one of the only Rabbeim there that tried to squeeze some drops of relevance out of those endless days, which, if I may be so bold, I think existed primarily so that administrators could say they were having days of seminars and served no other purpose than that. But at least for me, it uh, it served more of a purpose than that. So I continue reading and teaching. And I wanted to embody, and I'm going to date these two references, everything from A.S. Neal, Summerhill School, so the ultra-progressive, welcoming uh, environment to uh, Max Rafferty, who was sort of the uh, the staunch philosopher of conservative education. So I like to think that I was a combination of A.S. Neal and Max Rafferty in terms of how I taught. No, no references. You don't know the references there? Is that? Uh... I am embarrassed. Not really, though, because I, as someone who's been in the field for 45 years, I can't say that those names ring any sort of bell. Right. But, okay, okay. Uh, but but get to stay back here to the point, I would say my public school teachers of the 1950s and early 60s had a lasting influence on me because, you know, that was before American educators were prohibited to educate. You know, they, they were still allowed to educate. I understand. Their clarity in terms of presentation, uh, orderly classroom, uh, serious testing, serious homework. So I think um, I go back to, you know, Miss Calderell or Mrs. Horvath and Miss Fastenberg and the whole crew at the uh, PS206 in the late 50s and early 60s. So I think that that's one major influence upon me uh, as far as this goes. Also, uh, again, very much each kid according to who he was and what he was. I mean, I, my goal was to make the weakest player on the hockey team and the weakest Talmud in the Sheer feel that they were a part of it. So, for example, and this is an example from hockey, but I'll get back to share in a second. When we would have scrimmages in practice, I would divide the team into two teams, and I would always select the two worst players on the team to captain those two teams to make them feel a sense of Yeshus and the uh, kite in, in terms of the team. And so that was very, very important that that worst player should think he's a big part of the whole thing. And the same thing in Shia. Same thing in Shia was always, you know, calling out this kid and that kid. How are you? What's doing? What do you say to this? Well, well, well you know, what's the next word in the Gemara? And, um, you know, sometimes they knew. And uh, there was uh, a very big emphasis on everybody is a part of it. Everybody is a part of it. Everybody gets their own jokes, their own comments. So I think that was a very, very big part of what I what I tried to do. And then if they wanted to, after they left, the share left the, if they left the class I was open to keep up the shyness. I wasn't forcing it upon them but if they wanted to we would do that and so that I think was also a very big part of it so those are just some of the 
the methods used, the punctuality, the discipline was was also a very big part of it. So I tried to, again, you didn't know the references, but you have to read ASD. In terms of context, I think I I comprehend. Yeah, but I'm saying, yeah, right. You know, know, we we have a a lot of mutual friends, and I'm just wondering, we talk about a a tzevet, a a team of, of teachers. Did you ever feel that you wanted to mentor because some of the teachers like myself, I was going straight from Kleil thrown into the lion's den and it would have been great for not the principal was going to write up, you write you up as a, and, and maybe fire you, but rather another teacher who could observe and talk to you about what you did good, what you could do better, what your, your strengths are, um, what a method that might work. Um, and, and of course I've had such interactions, but, but one of the things, you know, especially teachers are very sensitive, especially, you know, that they, they're worried about their pranasa, they're worried that the criticism is cutting to the bone. And part of what you need to do is establish a connection with another person and say, this is not to challenge you as a good person or, uh, that you don't deserve where you are, but this is rather to enhance. And it's because I care for you and because I know we both care about the students. Did you ever feel that, you know, you know, you talked about mentoring. Did you ever feel that you would do that with some of the other first time or young teachers or even, you know, yeshivish teachers who had never gone and read any of the books or had any of the models that you had in public school? Two, two thoughts on that. Not formally, only informally in conversations in the Rebbe's room and, in, you know, sharing maybe materials, but nothing formal. And the other thing I would say is stay away from those principals. They're the last guys you want to go to because uh, I always say principals, administrators, heads of school, they have a very different goal here than a Rebbe and a teacher has. They want to preserve their job with wealthy and powerful parents and board members. You want to teach me Makar of Talmidim. So don't get them involved in what you're doing. It'll only dangerous. Stay away from them. And when they ask you what's doing in your classroom, it's all good. Everything is successful. I had a colleague of mine in OTI who came very close to getting fired. And he almost got fired because he was talking to the principal about problems he had in the classroom. So in later years, we would always meet. I would say, you know, how is the share coming along? He says, all the boys are learning and everything's perfect. <laughs> Which is what yes, he learned sir. to say. When he learned to say. That's right. It's like Stay away from those guys. They're, they're trouble. One of the things that you hinted at about the change in the modern Orthodox schools is that their graduates are coming back and becoming teachers again. Students from those type of institutions who have not just learned in Eretz Yisrael for a couple of years in Galil and spent some years, but have actually taken courses on efficient teaching are at the top of the game and competing with others for these top positions, which right now are paying quite a bit. Uh, compared to what, you know, uh, other sort of teaching positions. And I think that has changed the atmosphere in these modern Orthodox schools. The yeshiva, like I remember I was teaching in one school uh, in Kushner. I remember there was a, a, a colleague of mine, a female colleague of mine that said, you know, you're the yeshivasha guy. We always have one yeshivasha teacher, one like yeshivasha uh, traditionalist type of teacher. That's your role over here today. And that that really reflects the fact that things were changing. And I think so many B'nai Teira who are Mitzrochim and they feel, okay, you know, I'm going to go out and teach. They don't know what 
they're asking for. They don't know what they're getting into. Even though they're great on a piece of Gemara, and even though as a Lamdan, they could give Chaburas that would cross a rabbi's eyes, as Tevye said. But in terms of how to manage a class, in terms of how to generate interest, in terms of efficiency, they they have no idea of how to do that. And it it becomes a, a situation that I think, unfortunately, with the compression of so many schools, and many rebellion losing their positions, there's, there's really not much for them to do. You were fortunate that you had the foresight, the model, and the understanding of what, what would be involved in teaching. Whereas many wonderful Hamid HaChachamim B'nai Teira, who were thrown into the situation, found themselves overwhelmed and out of a job within a year or two. Well, if, if no parents complain, usually safe. But I was talking yesterday to one of the Magidashir in Munkach, really, really good fellow. He learns with great and incisive clarity. And I asked him, we were talking, and I said, there's a, a certain very shreya toysis there in Kedushan, of Gimel Ahmed Bey's on the bottom. And I said to him, how many, told me, what percentage of your shear do you think can follow this toysis? And I said to him, uh, certainly at least 20% can't do this. And he says to me, 20%? Probably half. And I was going to say at that point, well, now that you're doing that, I'd probably say it's more than half who can't follow it. So, but again, the question is, what is the goal of these systems? Is it is it uh, social orthodoxy? Is it making you occupy yourself during your teenage years? So I think many of these institutions, and I include them from the modern orthodox to the Hasidish, they do not have a clear model in their own minds as to what they're trying to do. Gemara is a very difficult subject. And Gemara with Tosfus is not Tzainul Shveda, okay? And, and with Rishonim, forget about it. And have we thought about what our six, seven, eight-hour Gemara days are doing and how we should do it. And again, it applies to the Ma'an Orthodox as well, because even though their Gemara day is shorter, but they have these same issues. So what is the goal? Is it Yediyya? Is it Yigiyya? Is it Elochai? Is it Yerushalayim? And I think the system floats way too comfortably along without addressing these uh, these issues. And you're 100% correct, uh, especially, I, and I think it, it's, been, it's been evolving. When I started teaching in Ida Crown, which was 1997, I believe it was, I was told by many of my Rabbeim friends who were with me, our goal is to keep them from enough that they'll go to Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> yes, our okay. job is to keep them online yes. that they want to go to Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. But we are not here to, to somehow uh, sink into them the brilliance and beauty of any sugya and for them to walk out knowing the shaklavataria on any daf. This was always maddening to me because I felt it was sort of, the, you know, we're sort of guilty of bastardizing the very best product that, that Judaism has ever produced, which is the Talmud. The Talmud is, is crucial for thinking like a Jew. And it isn't just there to be touchy-feely isn't just there to lead to conversations about the important role of Israel in the world. Um, it's, it's, it isn't there to necessarily make them want to be more medoctic and mitzvahs. It's really there for them to learn how to think like a Jew. 
to understand the mental dexterity, which it's important to approach maybe any subject, but specifically the what God wants from them and how crucial it is to become your own Pisic, in other words, to, to recognize uh, shikulim, to recognize differences and subtle shades, and to also see the joy with which this endeavor happened in the Talmud, as opposed to imbibe, to imbibe the holiness of it. I did that, but go ahead. Yes, yes, but 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 part of the holiness is how beautifully it fits your mind and where you're at. How it somehow uh, it somehow touches that that part of you that wants a little bit of pilpul, a little bit of aspirus, a little bit of nitzachon, even and the personalities that can come alive, and you really believe that you are sharing uh, your mind with them, and they have they have become part of you and part of your your mindset. So, so I think that you know this is a, a tremendously difficult task, and I, I don't, we're not going to solve it today. But you know, I, I'm def. I, I think we've reached the point, Rev. Mayor, that maybe from you know again we we sort of like compressed a lot in, in today's discussion, but maybe from this point on we can sort of think about you know various subjects, whether from my side or from your side, uh, and, and, and how the educational process can, can be streamlined or how we can move further. I don't think either of us ever can engage in an hour or 45-minute conversation without sprinkling biographical nuggets into the bowl. So those are still to come, but I think we're going to move from, the, from pure biography uh, to perhaps the here and now and, and some questions that uh, range from the from the tiny to the mighty, and and hopefully it'll be interesting for both of us. So, thank you, Mayor. Thanks again for the time. We'll catch everybody hopefully uh, next week with more schmoozing uh, with Mayor Schiller. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.